this next season of life. Right after Easter, Pastor Ray felt led to preach on the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it's been great. It's been so impactful for me. And I know for a lot of us. And this morning, I want to kind of jump in that stream and and do some teaching from what I've learned in my program, my current program at Talbot, specifically my spiritual formation classes. And the material that I'm going to be teaching today comes from John Coe, who happens to be my wife's favorite professor at Talbot. And if you have your Bibles with you, will you turn with me to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, a passage that is familiar to many of us. Ephesians chapter 5, and if you are able, if you can stand with me for the reading of God's word. I love you. Oh my goodness. She is right in the front, right in the front. I'm going to be distracted now the whole time. Thank you guys. Oh, man. All right. Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always, and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. God, we behold your glory this morning. And we recognize that right now we are on holy ground. real because you are here because you the holy God of of the universe are here help us God to recognize it God make us aware now of your presence that you are here in love And you are here to transform. And God, we know that it's through your word and it's through your spirit that we are changed. So God, I just commit every one of us into your hands. Asking God that you would come and you would have your way in our midst and that you would do the transformative work that only you can. But God, we know that whenever you're at work, so is the enemy of our soul. 
And so, God, in Jesus' name, in the authority that is ours in Christ, we bind every demonic activity. We cancel every assignment. Everything that is formed against us, God, would you cancel and bind in your power, in your grace, so that the only one who has influence and sway in this place, God, is you. The Holy Spirit, we welcome you now. And Lord, we open to you. God, we open to you. We open our hearts to you. And we invite you here. Come and show us who you are. Show us the things you would have us see that we might be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin my message this morning by summarizing the key difference between the two covenants, the old covenant and the new. Now, the old covenant, as many of you know, is what God had established with the nation of Israel, where they were required to obey God and keep his law. But when God gave his people the law, they weren't empowered to keep it. That is, there was nothing within or without that enabled them to walk in obedience to God's statutes. But here's what's interesting. The prophets under the old covenant prophesied that a day was coming when God would establish a new covenant with his people. And Jeremiah was one of those prophets. And this is what God says in Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold... The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, for this is a covenant I will make. I will put my law within their hearts, and I will write it on their hearts. So God says there's coming a day when the law that was written on stone will be written on human hearts. Ezekiel was another one of those prophets, and God declares in Ezekiel 36, 26, and I will give you a new heart, and I will, I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now today we hear that and go, okay, cool. But you got to understand that to the people in those days, this was astonishing. This was staggering that God would put his spirit inside a human heart. Are you kidding me? Like, I see the temple. I get it. I get the holy of holies, the presence of God. God's going to put that inside of a human being? And God says, yes. There's coming a day when I'm going to put my spirit in them. And I'm going to give them a new heart, and from the inside, from the inside, they're going to want to obey my commands, and my spirit is going to empower them to do so. And the people of God looked forward to that day. They longed for that day. And then it came. How? Through Jesus. The day the prophets foretold came, it was instituted by Christ specifically 
the cross of Christ. Jesus said on the night he was betrayed, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So through the shed blood of Christ on the cross, the new covenant is ushered in and it takes over the old. How? How does that happen? In two critically important ways. First, the righteousness the law demands is given to us. Don't miss this. The righteous requirement of the law, the righteousness that is demanded of a sinful people to stand before a holy God is given to us in the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us. And second, the condemnation that was ours for breaking God's law is taken from us as Jesus hangs on the cross. The wrath of God for sin, the wrath of God that was meant for you and me is poured out on the sinless Son of God instead. And all of that paved the way for the Spirit to come and make our hearts his home. And this is the whole point of the new covenant. Listen, Jesus did not forgive you of your sins so that you could keep the law. Jesus forgave your sins so that he could put his Spirit in you. Oh, this is huge. So that the very life of God can come into you and now help you to live your life in God and for God, which is what the Old Testament saints did not have. So in Christ, we are given life through the Spirit, but that's not all. We are now indwelt by the Spirit, the Spirit of the living God. If you are in Christ, indwells you, 1 Corinthians 3.16. We are sealed by the Spirit, Ephesians 1.13. We are sealed as a guarantee of our inheritance for the day of redemption, and we are empowered. We are now empowered by the Spirit to live the life Jesus died to give, Romans 8.11. And that's what it means to be a people under the new covenant. In other words, this is the Christian life. This is the Christian life. Now, the reason I just spent the last seven minutes talking about the difference between the two covenants is because we have way too many people in the church who are living like they're still under law and not the Spirit. We are essentially living our lives in our own strength and trying to obey the commands of God in our own power. Henry Holloman, who was my theology professor at Talbot, said this. Christians today live as if the Holy Spirit did not exist. It's been suggested that Christians function about 90% of the time with no concern about the Spirit. If this figure is correct, then many are definitely not experiencing the Spirit's power in their sanctification and service. And Charles Stanley, who passed away recently, summed it up this way. He said, far too many believers, for far too many believers, a Christian life boils down to simply doing the best best they can. There's no power and there's no real distinctive that can be attributed to anything other than discipline and determination. I meet believers all the time whose doctrine can be summed up in two statements. Nobody's perfect and God understands. What do you guys think? You think they're right? That most people in church live as though the Holy Spirit did not exist. That for many, the Christian life boils down to simply doing the best they can. 
believe they are. I believe they're spot on in the description of the way most Christians live their lives. Is it any wonder why so many in the church today question if the Christian life really works? Like, does this stuff really work? Like, for real? The stuff that the preachers are always saying, does this stuff really work? Or is it just a pie in the sky? We'd be surprised that so many, so many in the church see their life in God as a burden. Where their life in God is a burden, there's no joy. It doesn't give life. It's not life-giving. It's just a burden. It's a heavy yoke. And we're just kind of going through the motions. Is there any wonder why so many Christians struggle with guilt and shame? Because they are not where they feel they should be. And this is prevalent in the church today. This is prevalent among the people that I meet with as a pastor. So many people are wracked with guilt and shame. And these are people that love God and want to pursue God and want to grow in God. But they keep falling into the same patterns, the same sins, and they're like, man, what is wrong with me? Why can't I get this right? They're just wracked with guilt and shame over their failures. Can any of you relate to what I just described? Anybody been there? We all have, right? We've all experienced this. As believers, we want to grow. We want to change. And yet many of us struggle in these ways, and when we find ourselves in these places, there are a few different ways we can go. The first is resignation. In other words, this is just the way it is. This is a Christian life. And we just accept that our spiritual lives are dry, and it's always going to be dry. The second is immorality. That is, we act out in sinful ways. Why? Because I want to feel something. I need something to make me feel alive, and something is better than nothing. And the third is morality. And this is the biggest temptation for those who are committed to God. To do what we can in our own power to relieve ourselves of the guilt and the shame. And so what do we do? We serve more. We give more. We pray more. We read more. We fast more. We do more and more and more thinking that more of what we do will do the trick. My guess is that we have people here in this room in each of those places. Some of you have resigned, if you're honest. Some of you have resigned to the notion that the Christian life is dry bones. It's a heavy yoke. That's just, that's just the way it is. And what we right now are living in sin. Some of you are regularly turning to porn. You're regularly getting high on drugs, alcohol, to give you that semblance of feeling alive. And some of you right now are working hard to be good. 
But what's driving that isn't love for God. No, you're trying to appease God and cover up your deficiencies. If that describes you at all, I want to tell you today that there's a better way. There's a better way, and that's the way of the Spirit. And there's so much I can say here, and Pastor Ray has already shared so much incredible stuff about the Spirit's role in our lives. And really, I encourage you to go back and listen to some of the sermons. I'm still marinating on some of those principles and concepts. But today, I want to highlight what Paul says here in Ephesians 5 about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Because I believe it is the key to living the life that Jesus died to give. And Paul's central theme here in the fifth chapter of Ephesians can be summed up in the first five words of verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. That is, let your life be a reflection of him and all that he is. And in the next 14 verses, Paul lists some of the ways that we are to do that. For instance, we are to walk in love. We are to not engage in sexual immorality. We are not to engage in filthy or cold, coarse joking. And then he says in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And in the the very next verse, he tells us what God wills for his people. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled. Be filled with the Spirit. Paul here gives two imperatives, two commands. The first is negative, and it is not to be get is not to get drunk with wine. And the second is positive, and it is to be filled with the Spirit. Now, the word "filled" here is what is called a present passive imperative in Greek. Let me try saying that again: present passive imperative. And this is a very strange syntactical construction. We see the same construction in Romans 12, 2, where Paul says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewal of your mind. But what's strange about this construction is that the subject is being acted upon, but it's also a command. So you're being, so something is happening to you, but it's also a command. Now, a present active imperative would be if I said to my kids, go to the neighbors and ask for a lemon, okay? Simple command, right? We get that. But the passive voice indicates that something is to happen to me, and in this case, I have to be filled with the Spirit, and yet it's an imperative, meaning it's a command. So what in the world is Paul saying here? Here's what he's saying. Here's what all of this means. I am commanded to allow the Holy Spirit to impact my life. That's what Paul is saying. I'm commanded by God to allow the Spirit to impact my life. How? How does that happen? By coming under its influence and control. That's the implication here. And that's why this command is juxtaposed with getting drunk with wine. Now, when you're drunk with wine, you are under the influence of alcohol, right? Right? You know what I'm talking about. And that influence permeates every part of you. 
right? Everything about you is affected, how you think, how you feel, how you act, in the same way. When you are filled with the Spirit, you are under His influence. You are under His control, and the Spirit controls or affects every part of you. So drunk people and Spirit-filled people have one thing in common. They are both controlled people. They are radically impacted by that which fills them. And when you are filled with the Spirit, what happens? What is the impact of the Spirit on your life? Tim Keller said this. And speaking of Keller, I don't know about you, but I'm still mourning his passing. And speaking of impact, man, that man has had such an impact on my life and on my ministry. Like I, I thought I knew the gospel. I thought I preached the gospel. But I came to understand what the gospel really was from that man. And I miss him dearly. I miss him so much more than I thought I would. I, just this week, I keep finding myself just going back to his sermons and listening to it again and again. I'm looking at his pictures. I miss him dearly. We lost a giant. But I'm thankful that when a man of God dies, nothing of God dies. Amen? When a man of God dies, nothing of God dies. Our God is very much on the throne. But Keller said this. He said, when the Spirit fills you, He opens your heart to God's presence and power. He opens your heart to the truth that He is with you and that in Him you have everything you need. So He opens the heart to the presence and the power of God that He is with you and that in Him you have all that you need. He says, this is the pattern that we see in Scripture, and he gives the example of Stephen. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is standing before the Jewish council, and he is testifying about Jesus and how they did not believe in God's Son because their hearts were hard. And verse 54 says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And that's when the religious leaders rush him and start chucking stones. But notice a couple of things. Stephen is filled with the Spirit. And in the fullness of the Spirit, what does he do? He testifies boldly about Christ. In the fullness of the Holy Spirit, he looks up and he sees heaven to open up. He sees God in all his glory and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now check this out. Here's what's interesting. Every time Jesus is seen standing or at the right hand of God, he's sitting. Every time. He is seated at the right hand of God. Why? Because it is finished. The work of redemption is complete. There's nothing more to be done. He is seated. But here and here alone in the entire New Testament, Jesus is standing. Why? Because Stephen is standing before men who are enraged. They picked up stones and they're about to kill him. 
And Jesus stands to his feet as if to say, Stephen, I'm with you. You are not alone. I am with you and I will strengthen you. They call you a heretic, but I call you mine. They're about to kill your body, but I will receive your soul. And Stephen, filled with the Spirit, senses that. The Spirit enables him to sense the presence of Christ and enables him to be bold and courageous in the face of death. And he proclaims Christ to the very end. Now, guess who was there when Stephen was stoned? Paul. Or Saul, as he was called then before he met Christ and was radically changed. Paul was there. He saw everything happen. And he saw how Stephen faced death, how different he was as this man is being killed. And the difference was the Holy Spirit. Stephen was filled with the Spirit, and that made all the difference. And here he tells the church in Ephesus, you too be filled with the spirit allow the spirit to control you allow the spirit to open your heart to the presence and the power of christ now let me say something here guys that i believe is really important okay being filled with the spirit and being made aware of god's power and presence doesn't always look like what I just described. It doesn't always look the way we think it should. Here's what I mean by that. We think that when we're filled with the Spirit, there's going to be this sudden surge of divine power or the felt presence of God where I go, oh, God is here. Oh, God is here. The Lord is in this place. But that's not always the case. Now, I wish it was. I wish every time I was filled with the Spirit, I would see heaven open up. And God in all his glory and Jesus seated at the right hand of God. I wish that was the case, but it's not. In fact, in fact, it's often the opposite. And this is where I want to do some teaching on the felt presence of God as it relates to the Spirit's work in our, in, in our lives. And I'm going to kind of pivot here, Okay. And let me start by saying that there are times in our lives when we're certain God is moving. We're certain the Spirit is at work. And that certainty comes from the fact that God seems so close. Like God feels so present in my life. You know what I'm talking about? Like I know God is here. Oh, I feel him. I feel his presence. I feel his power coursing through my veins. I, I know God is here. And these are wonderful times, and we want these times to last forever. But then there are times in our lives when God seems so distant, where he seems so far. And it's not because we walked away from God. I'm not walking in disobedience. I'm doing the same thing I was doing when I was good. But now God feels so far away. He feels so distant where I'm going, God, where are you? Where are you? What are you doing? God, what's wrong with you? Or what's wrong with me? What am I doing? God, why have you left me? 
And this is a sentiment we see all throughout the book of Psalms, right? The Psalms are replete. It's filled with such laments. By the way, did you know that there are more lament psalms than any other kind of psalm in the book of Psalms? And what's a lament? A lament is a, it's an expression of grief or sorrow. It's a complaint. And the, the book of Psalms is filled with psalmists like David, complaining to God about people, about life, and about God. They're complaining to God about God. Let me give you a couple of examples. Psalm 13, 1. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long are you going to forget me? How long would you, will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day long? In Psalm 88, my eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, Lord. I spread out my hands to you. I, O oh Lord, cry out to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? This is what they were saying to God. Now remember that the Psalms was a songbook of the Old Testament, okay? So the Old Testament saints, they put these words to music and they sang it corporately together in a congregation. And when the New New Testament church was born, this was their hymnal. Now can you imagine singing these words? God, will you forget me forever? I cry out to you day and night and you don't answer. Why do you hide your face from me? But that's what the ancients sang, just like that. Now, what does it say about contemporary worship? And most of our songs are not that. Most of our songs are celebration on how good everything is. Oh, I wish somebody would put these words to music. Because I guarantee you there would be a whole lot of people in our churches that would be able to relate to that. But how do we make sense of this? How do we make sense of this? In light of the truth of the new covenant that we now have the Spirit of God in us. And with the Spirit, the promise that God is always present, that God is always with us. And that he will never leave us or forsake us. How do we make sense of that? Because if that's true, and it is. If God is always present, if he will never leave us or forsake us, how come he doesn't make that more obvious? You ever think about that? You ever wonder that? Like, how come come God doesn't make his presence more obvious? Like, how come God doesn't give us more theophanies? What's a theophany? A theophany is a a manifestation of the presence of God in finite form. For example, the burning bush. How many of you would like the burning bush experience? I would. Can you imagine? If every time you open open the pipe, it just starts burning, but it's not consumed. And you're, God, you're here, this is your word. How come God doesn't do, he could, right? God could do that if he wanted to, and yet he doesn't. He doesn't do that. Why? I wish he did it, and yet he doesn't. Now, why doesn't God do that for us? Here's why. Paul says, because they don't change us. 
Instead, they don't change us. And he talks about this in 2 Corinthians 3, where he talks about Moses' face shining every time he goes into the presence of God. I preached this back in January. But every time Moses meets with God, his face becomes a mag light. And so he's got to put on a veil. But that glory fades, and it did. Over time, the face would stop shining. This is what Paul says in verse 8. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? And then he says in verse 18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In other words... The change we long for, listen, the change you want, the the transformation that God intends for you, comes from who? The Spirit. And not from experiences as glorious as they may be. Now, the church fathers wrote a lot about this. I'm talking about people like Augustine, Jerome, Ignatius, John of the Cross. And they noticed in their lives, as well as in the lives of the people that they discipled, that there was this pattern. There was this observable pattern as it relates to the believer's experience of God. Specifically, our experience of God's presence and absence. And this was fascinating for me. I gained so much insight from this, and I hope you do as well. Now, our journey with God begins when we place our faith in Christ, right? And they call this the beginner, the beginner. This is when faith takes. It's no longer my parents' faith. It's my faith now. And I've entered into a relationship with Jesus. I'm forgiven. I'm cleansed. I'm his. And this period, during this period, there's a, there's a strong felt presence of God. Meaning, I know God is here. I know God is with me. And these are the times when the Bible just comes alive for you. I mean, you're in the Word, and it's like every time you open this book, the words just leap off the pages, and it just grips your heart. You know what I'm talking about? You're praying, and it's amazing. Oh, the communion of God, communion with God, from your spirit to his spirit is just so sweet. And just want to pray, just want to be in constant communion with God. Worship is enthralling, it's captivating. Even times of hardship are meaningful because you feel God's presence so strongly. They call this time consolation. Consolation, and it's just, it's, It's this incredible time in a person's life where God feels so close. He's so present, and our experience of God is just just exploding, and it keeps going up and up and up. Constantly, it just keeps going up. But then they noticed that at a certain point, there was a plateau. All of a sudden, it just kind of flattens out, and it's not the same anymore. You don't feel the same anymore. It's not as exciting as it once was. And they saw this over and over again in the people that they were leading to Christ, the people they were discipling. And these were people that loved God and wanted to grow in Christ. But after this initial period of consolation, they would just kind of peter out. 
And they didn't feel as alive in God anymore. Then they noticed a downturn. Where it's not even just flat anymore. It's actually going down now. And it gets worse and worse and worse as God feels more and more and more absent. And they call this desolation. Consolation, plateau, desolation. Why? Because it feels so desolate. It feels barren. This is where you're in the Word and you are just bored out of your mind. You're praying, but you feel squat. Like you're praying, but your mind is somewhere else. Your heart is totally disengaged. Sermons feel tiresome. Worship feels repetitive and old. And your spiritual life feels as dry as the desert. This is what I began to experience in seminary. My first time there back in the 90s. Now, I came to Christ in my freshman year in college. Man, those were some of the best times, the best years of my life. It was this incredible period of consolation where I just felt so alive in God. Like God was so real to me. Like his presence was so tangible, was so good. And I was just, I would just, I'd spend every waking moment of the day with God and his word. Like during lunch, I wouldn't eat. I would just be in the word. I would just feast on the word. I would come home from school and I would just sit at my desk and I would just read the word for three, four hours at a time. And I would go eat and watch some TV and I would come back and I'd just be, be praying for hours on end. I couldn't get enough of God. I couldn't get enough. And it was awesome. Then after graduating, I went straight into seminary. And that's, be- that's when I began to plateau. And I was still doing the same things. I was still in the Word. I was still in prayer. I was in fellowship. I was le- leading a youth group, and it, which I loved, and it was, it was good. But, but my spiritual life began to peter out. And it just didn't feel the same anymore. And I couldn't figure out why. Because I'm in seminary now. It's in that environment that is, that's just so full of godliness. I'm, I'm surrounded by some of the most godly people I've ever met. Because if there was any time in my life where I should be trending up, it was there. But it was the opposite. I started trending down. And pretty soon seminary started feeling like cemetery. And I began to question God, what is going on? Like, really, what is going on here? What is happening to me? Like, God, did I do something wrong? Is there some sin in my life that I'm not aware of? God, what what is going on? Why do you feel so far? God, why have you left me? Like, I was genuinely asking that from my heart. The church fathers noticed this too. That after a period of consolation and plateau, there was this period of desolation and this really surprised them because it shouldn't be this way it shouldn't be this way because the person is more mature in their faith now right they're more more mature in their character they're more christ-like than ever so if anything there should be more consolation where god feels even closer i mean doesn't that seem like a natural progression 
that isn't that what you would expect? That the more mature someone is, that the more they feel the presence of God? But it was the opposite of that. And, and that really threw them for a loop. That really perplexed them. And this is what they came to. Please listen. They came to the realization that spiritual feelings do not necessarily correlate with spiritual maturity. Spiritual feelings do not necessarily correlate with spiritual maturity. The felt presence or the felt absence of God is not a marker. It's not a marker of one's maturity or character. In fact, they realize that spiritual feelings of God's presence or God's absence have less to do with our actions and more to do with God's gifts to us. Let me say that again. You got to get this. God's presence or God's absence are less the result of our actions, what we do or don't do, and more the gifts of God's grace to us. Now, consolation, I get how that's a gift because it feels so good. I mean, God just feels so close, right? And they said, this is the time when God is wanting to encourage us. So God is wanting to encourage us to direct our hearts to him. So you know what he does? He fills our hearts with joy. He fills us, he fills us with pleasures in him ahead of our character. Ahead of our character, meaning my character at this point hasn't changed all that much. I'm still pretty full of me. It's not very Christ-like, but God gives me a taste of his goodness. It's like he puts a spiritual bottle in my mouth, and I'm constantly sucking on this bottle, and it tastes so good, and he does that to direct my heart to him, for me to pursue him and the things that will cause me to grow in him, and that's why the word comes alive for you. That's why prayer is so, so rich and so sweet. Why you can't listen to enough sermons. Now, how about desolation? How is that possibly a gift? Here's how. This is the time in our lives when God says, you're ready. You're ready. You're ready to see who you really are. You're ready to see what's really in your heart. You know what God does? He takes away the feeling. He takes away the pleasure. He takes away the ease. He takes all that stuff away to expose the parts of our hearts that aren't like him. The parts of our hearts that don't really love him. He exposes that. Not just to expose him, look at what a sinner you are. No, that is not why he does that. He does that to take us on a journey of transformation. True transformation. The period of desolation is also known by a different name. The dark night of the soul. Anybody ever, ever hear the dark night? Anybody ever experienced the dark night? I have, and it is no fun. But the dark night is when, in the time, it's a time in our lives where God intentionally takes away the felt sense of his presence. 
and our experience of God is more absent than present. And it feels like I'm regressing. It feels like I'm going backwards spiritually and emotionally. It feels like I've done something wrong and God is punishing me. That's what it feels like. God is punishing me by abandoning me and it feels like that and it feels like it's forever. But here's what is actually taking place. Here's what God is actually doing. What God is actually doing is graciously allowing me to experience my own emptiness apart from him. He is graciously allowing me to experience my own emptiness apart from him. God is showing me just how needy and dependent I really am. Because here's how we think. During consolation, when everything is good, you know how we think? We think I'm making this happen. I'm making this happen. I pray and God comes. I'm in the word and God comes. I, I worship and God is all over me. I'm making this happen. That's how we think. But you know what God does? He takes all of that away. We're in the dark night. I can't do anything. Hey, worship team, don't come up yet. Okay? I'm not done. I'm <laughs> just getting started. I'm just warming up. But in the dark night, I can't do anything. Like nothing I do is making God come. Like I'm even reading more. I'm praying harder. I'm serving more. I'm doing all these things and nothing is happening. But God is using that to show you or to take you into new places of neediness and dependence. And we see a picture of this in 2 Corinthians 12 with Paul. Right? Where God uses a thorn in the flesh to drive him to the place of utter weakness. Why? Why does God do that? Because Paul started believing his own stuff. He started believing. We're not, we're not, not yet, not yet. Yeah. I'll, I'll call you guys out, okay? My bad, yeah. Sorry, guys. Why does Paul give, why does God give Paul a thorn in the flesh? Why does he drive him to the place of utter weakness? Because Paul started thinking that it was him that was causing all these incredible things, these incredible revelations to happen to him. And God says, no, Paul, it's not you, it's me. It's me. And so you brace him. He breaks him. And it's in that place of brokenness, that place of weakness. It's in that place of neediness and dependence that Paul discovers what true power is. That true power rests on weakness, on neediness and dependence, not on strength. You see, the whole purpose of the dark night is to teach you, John 15, 5, that you really can't do anything apart from him. They're reading the word and they're bored to tears. You're praying and your heart and your mind are totally disengaged. And, and God is saying, I want you to see that. I want you to see that about yourself. You're mature enough now to see that. And those disciplines, you know what they become? They are now mirrors to what is really in your heart. They're mirrors to what is really inside of you. That what you really love isn't God. You love the feeling he gives. 
You know what you want? You want the excitement. You want the passion. You want the energy. You want the power. You don't want authentic spirituality. And God is showing you that. He was showing you that by removing everything that used to stand on outside of himself. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in the screw tape letters. He says, he meaning God will set them off with communication of his presence, which though faint, seemed great to them. With emotional sweetness and easy conquest over temptation. But he never allows a state of affairs to last long. Sooner or later, he withdraws. Not if, if not in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives. It is during such trough periods, more than during the peak periods, that God is growing them into the kind of creature he wants them to be. That's good. So guys, here's what you need to know about the dark night. This is hugely important, so please don't miss this. In times when God feels distant, he is actually drawing closer to you. God, help us get this. In those times when God feels so far, he is actually drawing closer. God is not withdrawing from you. Only the feelings of consolation. That's the only thing he's pulling away. He's moving in closer than ever. And he's taking you to the depths. He's taking you deep. Because it is there in the depths that he writes the law on your heart. It is there in the depths. And it is only there in the depths. That he transforms you from the inside out through his spirit. Because see, God is not interested in you just having experiences of him. Are you hearing me? God is not interested in you just having experiences of him. No, he wants to transform you into the image of Christ. That's his aim in your life. He wants to make you more like Jesus. Some of you right now are in desolation. You are. Some of you right now may be in the dark night. And you feel so alone. You feel so dry. You feel as empty as can be. And you're wondering why God has left you. I want to tell you today that God hasn't left you. God has not left you. He's right there with you. Listen, he's working right now. He is working right now. Guys, remember, remember that the feelings of God's presence are not the same thing as his presence. The feelings of God's presence are not the same thing as God's presence. He is with you right now. And you are with him even if you don't feel it. Even if you don't feel it, even when you don't feel a thing, God is always present. He is with you. And if you are in the dark night, and some of you really right now are in desolation, where God just feels completely absent, what can you do? What can you do? Here's something, some things that I would encourage you to do. 
All right, worship team, now you can come out. First, come out of hiding. Come out of hiding. Come out of hiding and begin to lament to God. That's the first thing. Come out of hiding and begin to lament. There's a reason, again, the lament psalms are in the Bible, why God put it in there. So that we would know how important it is in our relationship with him. So Christian, tell God what's on your heart, please. Tell God what is on your heart. Express to him your sorrows and your griefs. Complain to God. He can take it. In fact, he wants it. He wants to hear from you. We see that modeled for us all throughout the book of Psalms. Complain to God. You can even complain to God about God. Tell him what's on your heart. Remember that prayer, guys. Prayer is not a place to be good. It's a place to be honest. It's a place to be honest. So bring your honest heart before God and tell him everything that's on it, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Second, resist the temptation to fix yourself spiritually. Resist the temptation to fix yourself spiritually. Because the whole point of the dark night is to lead you to the truth that you can't fix yourself. But the big temptation when we're in the dark night will be, try, will be to try to get ourselves out of it. How? By generating a feeling. By trying to create a spiritual experience, a spiritual high so that I feel close to God again. So that I can tell myself that God is near. So that I can tell myself that God is with me. So that I can convince myself that I'm all right. That there's nothing wrong with me. I'm good. That's going to be the big temptation when we're in desolation in the dark night. And you know who's notoriously guilty of this? Churches. Churches are guilty of this. There are churches out there that are all about trying to generate a feeling. They're all about trying to generate an experience so that you can feel the spirit. And everything in their gathering, everything in their service is geared towards that. Because this is how we think. We think that if God is somewhere, we think that if the spirit of God is present, there's going to be a whole lot of excitement and power and passion and, and energy. And churches think the same way. And so it's all celebration all the time. It's energy all the time. And I've been at churches. I've been to churches where from jump, they're like, everybody get up. Come on, she lift up a shout of praise. And it just feels so contrived, and it feels artificial and manufactured. Now, I got nothing against celebration. I'm not knocking the place of celebration. We've got, as God's people, have every reason to celebrate in light of what God has done for us. But we have got to be careful not to equate excitement and passion with God's presence. Because sometimes the Spirit of God is present. Sometimes God is in a place and it's heavy. It's solemn. There's stillness. There's brokenness. There's weeping and there's lament. And God is just as prevalent and just as present in those places. And we cannot forget that. 
So resist the temptation, Christian, to fix yourself. Instead, open your heart to the Spirit. Open to the Spirit. Open to the Spirit. And God's just inviting me to whatever space you're in. This is key. This is key. Wherever you are, wherever you find yourself, whatever is going on inside of you, whatever is going on for you, invite the Spirit to just be with you in it. Not so that He can fix it. Hear me, hear me, hear me. Not so that He can fix whatever's wrong. Far too often we think the Spirit's only job is to give us power. Power for this, power for that. But more than giving us power, you know what he gives? He gives himself. He gives himself to us. He gives us his presence. He gives us his love. And that's what you and I need most. We need him. We need him. And it's in our relationship with the Spirit. That's what changes us. To open yourself to the Spirit. In all situations, at all times, in all things. And related to that last thing, keep doing the spiritual disciplines. This is critically important. Keep doing the disciplines. I know that during the dark night, when, when you're in desolation, when you're as dry as can be, I know it's hard. I know you feel like you get nothing out of it. When you're as dry as can be, I know the last thing you want to do is be in the Word. The last thing you want to do is pray. The last thing you want to do is practice solitude or practice Sabbath rest, but you cannot forsake them. You can't. You can't afford to. You know why? Because that's how we open to the Spirit. That's why we call them spiritual disciplines, because those are the ways in which we open our heart to the Spirit. The disciplines themselves do not change you. I hope you know this. The disciplines themselves don't change you. It's the Spirit who changes you as you engage in those disciplines. Keep doing them. By God's grace, stay in the Word. Be with God in prayer. Be in the fellowship of God's people. Come out. Keep coming out. I know you don't feel like it. I know there are a thousand other places you'd rather be on Sunday. But fight in the might that God gives. Be in the stream of God. Because that's how you open to the Spirit. And God, in due time, He will lift you up. He will. Let me invite you now just to bow your heads and let's just go to the Lord. I don't know where you are. But I do know some of you right now are in desolation. And God just feels so far.
Some of you are wondering if God is punishing you for some sin. Let me be the one to tell you that if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. And no condemnation means no condemnation. Now, God disciplines us, yes. But He doesn't condemn you. And I want to say it again. I know God feels like He's a thousand miles away. But He's right there with you. He is. And you are right there with Him. You are. I know you don't feel it. I know you don't feel it. But God is right there with you. And he loves you so much. Will you just open your heart to that? Wherever you are, wherever you have been, Whatever you have done or haven't done, will you just open your heart to that? That if you are in Christ, that God right now, oh, he loves you like crazy. He loves you so deeply and madly here. He has set his affections on you. Then, when you first came to Christ, And it is no less now, not one iota. He loves you perfectly right now. Paul tells us in Romans 8, there's nothing in all creation, nothing in heaven, nothing on earth, nothing in the present, nothing in the future, nothing in your own heart, nothing in your own heart, no sin in your life, Nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You are loved. You are loved. I just want to give you a moment right now. Will you just come out of hiding? Oh, saint, come out of hiding. out of hiding and just open yourself to the spirit just open yourself to the spirit he's here just open yourself to the spirit and just tell him whatever's on your heart tell him the good the bad and the ugly complain to him about him if you need it's good for your soul so just go before God If you need to be still, be still. If you want to say it, say it. You want to stand, if you want to kneel, I don't care. Just just open yourself to the Spirit. We're not going to rush. If you got to go, go. This is the Christian life. This is what it means to be filled and to walk in the Spirit.
God, tell us your word. That man looks at the heart or man looks on the appearance, the outside. But you look at the heart. What is hidden from man is uncovered before you. There is nothing about us, there's nothing in our lives, not one thing that is hidden from you. God, you know it all. You see it all. And knowing and seeing everything, God, you are gracious and merciful and kind. You are so loving. God, I pray that your people would know this. I pray, God, that they would know that even if they don't feel you right now, even if they can't sense you, even if they can't see what you're doing, help them, God, to know in the deep, in the depths, as deep cries out to deep, God, cause them to know that you are there. And God, that you're working. You're working. You're working out your purposes, God, for their lives. You're working out your purposes for this season of their life. Oh, God, help them to know that you are working. And whether they feel you or not, that they would know, that they would know your goodness and love. And so, God, I pray that you would teach us. Continue, God, to teach us to walk in your spirit. That we would be filled with the spirit in whatever situation we find ourselves in. Every moment of the day, God, that we would just do life with you. That we would just do life with you. That we would just interact with you and relate to you and inquire of you. And to ask, Spirit, what are you wanting for me in this moment? Lord, what are you doing in my life? What are you wanting to do in my life? Because maybe you're not wanting to fix it. Because maybe right now you're not wanting to take me out of this. Maybe you want me to stay right where you have me. But God, would you teach us to inquire and to just open ourselves to you in whatever space we find ourselves in. Because Jesus, that's why you died. That's what you died to give. So that your spirit might be in us. To help us live and experience the life that you died to give us. So Holy Spirit, thank you. Oh, Lord, thank you. And Spirit, I ask for forgiveness. God, you, on behalf of our church, 
where far too often we have seen you as some impersonal force whose only job is to give us power. Instead of seeing you as a person who loves and loves deeply, who is grieved when we walk away. Spirit, forgive us. And Spirit, fill us. Fill us, Sonny. Fill us with yourself. In Jesus' name.